0: Team. You're listening to MLB.com Extras, brought to you by MLB.tv. It's baseball everywhere.
1: Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Anthony Kastrovitz. This is our weekly White Sox chat joined now by scott merkin and Merk, uh, the white Sox are coming off a two and four road trip i don't know if that qualifies as adversity but if so it's it's probably their first real bout with adversity so far in this regular season uh what were your takeaways from that trip
2: well i believe they're one three and one in their last five series they only win is against minnesota who obviously is not having a a good season at all i, I think you know what you expected was going to happen. This team was not going to run away and win 110 games. And I guess they still could. They're still 10 games over. But there were going to be points where they struggled. And, excuse me, that was this road trip. You know, I mean, the bullpen was not good on this road trip. You know, a a turning point probably in the trip was, I believe, it was game two when they gave seven runs in the eighth inning to the Rangers and lost 13-11. Excuse me, so that will change things right away. But I, I just think, you know, the bullpen's been great all year. The starting pitching's been decent all year. The defense has been going, and the defense remained good. It just had a costly error in the series finale against the Yankees. Mm-hmm. But, you know, things are going to be up and down. It's just the way it goes, and they're entering a real crucial part, even in late May. You know, eventually we're going to be saying it's September, but right now it's still late May, 38 games in. So we'll see how they kind of right the ship. With You know, they're were they were all pretty excited about not just having a day off after the Yankee series, but having a day off at home, too. So we'll see how they regroup with Houston coming to town on Tuesday.
1: Uh, appropriately enough, you guys were in New York on Sunday, and Sunday marked the start of Joe DiMaggio's hit streak. I say appropriately enough because you had a cool story about Robin Ventura and his hitting streak uh, for Oklahoma State in 1987, 58 games, Division One record. Uh, what do you have to say about uh, that hit streak uh, versus that of Joe DiMaggio?
2: Well, he, he uh, as many people agree, don't think anyone will <laughs> even you know, come close to Joe DiMaggio's streak. What was the, I guess the closest? in modern time is Pete Rose and he was still twelve game short, right? I mean he was still right. he was still a good hitting streak away from tying Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak, you know. So I mean these guys who've hit 38, 39 in a row, which is amazing, are almost a month away still from tying Joe DiMaggio's streak. Which is just kind of crazy. I mean I think you put that up there with the Cal Ripken streak and those and I guess Cy Young's win total also will probably never be touched. And those are records that you can look at and just say, well, you know, it's nice to have set and you can shoot for him somewhere somewhere else but yeah, I thought it was interesting and very true to Robin Ventura's character in that, you know, he appreciated what he did, he liked what he did, but he was more concerned about the team's push to the national title that year. They, they lost in the championship to Stanford with Jack McDowell, who he ended up becoming teammates with in the White Sox, who was part of the shutdown game and the end of his hitting streak, the second to last game of the uh, College World Series, and that's what he cared more about. And he was more worried about, you know, having singular attention on him take away from the Great things the team were, was doing, and that's pretty much how he manages. And I didn't cover him when he played, but that's how much that's from what I've been told how he played too. You know, so I mean, he appreciated the record, but it's not something that I think he sits and dwells about or you know sits with his family and says, "Hey, remember that time I hit in fifty-eight straight or 50, yeah, fifty-eight straight for Oklahoma State? That, that was great." I think he just you know it's there. And An interesting thing, and I don't know if you'd agree with this, Anthony, and I think it'd be a player like this. He thought that in his prime, Ichiro was the best bet to break the record, just because of the fact that. You know, Ichiro would hit routine grounders to short and somehow beat them out for infield hits. And that's almost how you have to have that because, let's face it, even the guys on the best roles are not going to hang out line drives for 56 straight games. you got to have a bloop in there. you got to have an infield hit, broken bat hit somewhere. And he thought Ichiro, so yeah, I, they pretty much, people who talked about it pretty much think, you know, good speed, good contact guy. Not necessarily, even guys like Mike Trout, they didn't think would be a, a candidate because, you know, he's, a power guy who strikes out a little bit. So, uh, Itro, when he mentioned it, was was a perfect candidate. I thought obviously not going to do it now. He's not going to play that many games in a row. But would have been a great candidate in his prime. I thought.
1: Yeah. At this point, uh, Itro would just
2: be happy to to play in fifty six trade games. <laughs> but uh, that's another topic for another time. Uh, can you can you think well, of anyone off the top of your head? I I can't really think of anyone like no. you know just that jumps out at you that you could say, well, this is a guy. I, mean, I guess it's hard to pick a guy who you can say. Even the best of guys aren't going to hit 56 games in a row, you know? Yeah, it's, it's
1: too hard to even get a hit in, in today's game with the shifts and everything. Right. Yeah, and the media pressure. But, um, you know, Adam Eaton had a streak of a different sort that was snapped on Sunday. I think it was, I want to say 62 plate appearances without a strikeout, maybe 61. Uh, but it was the longest that of streak in baseball at the time. Uh, he also, Merck, you may know this, he entered the week trailing only Jose Altuve in baseball references war calculation. Um, so we know uh, not all that is you know, tied to the offense. A lot of that's tied to the defensive values provided right field. But uh, really, he's probably been their most productive or, or most uh, valuable regular here in the early going. Yeah, he was actually leading in baseball reference
2: defensive war going into the series against the NFC. Yeah. and. You know, it's interesting. He's a very proud kid, very directed, good guy too, you know, and, and you can tell he really enjoys what he's doing. But he made an interesting point to me in that story about, um, about you know, leading in, in the war. And, and to be honest with you, I don't think these guys really worry too much. I know there are a few. I've seen stories about a few who really do study the Saber metrics, but I don't think they really know. I don't think anyone comes to the park and says, hey, guys, you see I was leading in isolated power or something like that, you know. But he said he feels a little – I don't know what the word is for it. I guess it's appointed that people because he had a rough year last year, and let's face it, the whole team had a really rough year in fifteen in center field that people have already automatically it's funny how he talks more almost as much about not wanting to be pigeonholed as just a good right fielder and a bad center fielder and reminding people that, you know, in two thousand fourteen he was a finalist for the gold glove in center field. So mm. I think what he's trying to say is that just because he's playing great right field right now doesn't mean it's guaranteed the rest of the year, but just because he played poor center field last year or had a poor year in center field last year, doesn't mean he's not a good defensive outfielder overall who can play in a number of different positions. So I understand that. You know, I mean, I think on one hand it's kind of like, you know, someone saying, hey, that's a great new haircut because they didn't like your old haircut, you know? And I think that's what <laughs> he's taking it a little bit as, that, wow, you really are a great right fielder because, man, you couldn't do it in center field last
1: year. <laughs>
2: and he kind of disagrees with that.
1: Well, it's understandable. You're right. Uh, his, the reputation did change in a hurry as far as the defensive value, and, and it can change back the other way in a hurry. We see that a lot. Um, Miguel Gonzalez would would like to change his reputation uh, uh, with the White Sox uh, from the early going. He's uh, got a 5.17 ERA so far, nine earned runs and 15 and in two thirds innings, 1.85 WHIP. Uh, I know they they want to uh, see this play out and see what they have in Gonzalez, but uh, what's the thought process going forward with him? And I guess how long do you think that leash is? Bert?
2: Well, as you know from covering many many games in your time, there's nothing that slows a game down more for someone covering the game than a large amount of walks. You know, than a, than a yeah. pitcher who's kind of I'm not gonna say nibbling around the strike zone, but just missing the zone. And I can only imagine what it's like for the players who are standing behind him and trying to stay focused and. You know, as Bob Euker would say, ball eight, ball 12, ball 16. Now, it wasn't that bad for Gonzalez. He thought his stuff was almost too good. He was getting too much movement because his sinker was working. He was getting ground ball outs in that game against the Yankees. But you got to throw strikes. And I understand that there was a little bit of, you know, question with the home plate umpire. I think that went on both sides. I happened to be looking up at the TV a couple of times when I saw some pitches Tanaka threw that were pretty close in that game as well. So, yeah, I think he's just got to focus. On. He's not a big strikeout guy. Even in, his, even in his best years at Baltimore, he wasn't a strikeout guy. So he's just got to attack and get those ground balls. And answer to your question, yeah, I think he's still the guy. I, I don't think there's anyone else in the picture right now, barring you know any kind of surprise, signing, or trade. Carson Fulmer is not ready yet. He walked eight guys his last time out. He's their top pitching prospect. You know, Eric Johnson had a shot. He may get another one at some point, but right now I think you know Gonzalez above Johnson and Chris Beck and Jacob Turner and Carson Fulmer is is the interim answer for the White Sox.
1: All right, we'll see what happens there. And uh, I want to thank Scott Merkin for joining us. Thank you all for tuning in. This has been MLB.com Extra, Chicago White Sox edition.